Retrieval practice has consistently been shown to be important in developing long-term recall. Many students, however, resist the use of this practice. In this episode, we discuss methods of overcoming this resistance and examine how retrieval practice may be productively used to increase student learning. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, we're welcoming back Dr. Michelle Miller. Michelle is the director of the First Year Learning Initiative, professor of psychological sciences, and president's distinguished teaching fellow at Northern Arizona University. Dr. Miller's academic background is in cognitive psychology. Her research interests include memory, attention, and student success in the early college career. She co-created the First Year Learning Initiative at Northern Arizona University and is active in course redesign serving as a redesign scholar for the National Center for Academic Transformation. She is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and has written about evidence-based pedagogy and scholarly as well as general interest publications. Welcome back, Michelle. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here today. We're so happy to have you again. Today's teas are... Well, I'm drinking Coco Loco, which is a blend from a local tea shop here in Flagstaff, Arizona, Steep Tea. And Coco Loco is a lot like what it sounds like. It's chocolate and banana. So tea snobs may scoff at my choice, but it's wonderful. It sounds good. And I think I saw a nice silver teapot that was poured into a green and blue tea mug. Yep. A nice tall one. That's what I need. And I'm drinking ginger peach green tea. I went with a Christmas tea today. So, Michelle, we invited you here today to talk a little bit about retrieval practice. Can you first start with defining that for us and letting us know what it is? Right. So, retrieval practice is essentially the act of pulling something out of memory. So, that is, in memory research, what we would term retrieval. So, something is stored in memory and we want to pull it out so we can actively use that information, have it in our conscious minds, and so forth. And so, we go through this usually very fast process called retrieval. So retrieval practice is specifically the act of doing that and we contextualize that with learning. So when I'm trying to learn something or I'm in the process of learning something, I say, oh, what was that fact I remembered or what can I say about this? When we do that, it produces something that we can call the testing effect. So this is kind of the clearest example, not the only, but the clearest example of retrieval practice in action during learning is when we sit down to take a quiz, take a test, or something like that. So all the excitement that's happened around retrieval practice in higher education, and really in the rest of education today, is around this finding, which has been replicated many, many times, that tests are, as one person put it, not neutral events in learning. When we take a test on something, that has a very powerful effect on our ability to remember it in the future. So really simplified down to its core, tests help us remember in the future. When we take a test, it strengthens our memory. So that's what retrieval practice is. And it can, as we'll maybe talk about today, take many, many forms in learning settings. And I did want to clarify too, 
this is something that I definitely don't want to take any kind of credit for discovering this. This has been around and has been known about for a long, long time. Some of the big names who are associated with this, Jeffrey Carpicky, Robert Bjork, Roddy Rodiger, there are quite a few really heavy-hitting cognitive scientists and cognitive psychologists who have established this. But there are many, many of us who are out there trying to disseminate this to other teachers around the world so that we can all tap into the power of this. And I have done a little bit of work in this area with my colleague here at Northern Arizona University, Lori Dixon, who's another psychologist. And we teamed up some time ago to look at a very practical implementation of retrieval practice in an introduction to psychology course that we conducted some years ago. And this is a course you can imagine where just trying to get students to perform even a little bit better is a big project. So we examined how even something kind of basic, it was very high tech at the time, but just basic web quizzes that came packaged with the textbook. We said, well, if we actually assign students to do these as part of the course, and if they went through and treated these as opportunities to learn, not just assessments in and of themselves, would that have any systematic impact on course performance? And we found that, in fact, there was a significant improvement associated with that. So that's kind of the landscape of what retrieval practice is and why we've been so interested in discussing this in the psychology of teaching and learning. In fact, I saw you present on that about 11 or 12 years ago in Orlando at one of the NCAT conferences. And it convinced me to completely revise how I was giving my classes. And it's made a big difference and resulted in some significant improvements in student learning. Given that we know so much about retrieval practice, why are faculty resistant to doing this? Wow, that's a great question. And that is one that I have been really facing a lot these days in my own practice, talking to other faculty members and disseminating this through some different activities I do in this area. It is easy for those of us who work in this area, cognitive psychologists in particular, but a lot of us who, like you, heard about this a long time ago, we've seen the power of it. We forget that to other faculty, this can be a very off-putting concept. And so it's really great for us to think about why that is. And I always think that's really good for me to kind of go back to that and say, yeah, not everybody is sold on this idea. And there are good reasons for that. So like with a lot of things that we talk about in teaching and learning, I think that these really break down into two neat categories. There's the philosophical issues that people have with it, and then there's more practical and logistical issues with it. So kind of tackling those one at a time. Philosophically, when people say, yeah, I understand about the research, but this just goes against something that I believe as a teacher or how I want my classes to be, here's some ways that that can play out. First off is this idea that I've heard in one form or another quite a few times, and that is this notion of superficial learning. So, okay, sure, there's a study that showed that maybe people retain something a little bit better, but surely that's not this deep learning. Whatever that is, that's a concept that we all want. So do tests and exams, just testing create just a superficial form of learning. And while, of course, I understand that, and I absolutely applaud faculty for really thinking deeply about that issue and caring about it, here's the thing, we got to define that. We social scientists, that's what we do. We have to kind of break things down and say, okay, what does deep learning mean? And I don't know that anybody has kind of definitively done that. But when I look at that, I say, well, this is not just one research study that showed a little improvement in a lab test. There's quite a few studies that do use realistic types of materials. It's not all just contrived laboratory studies. Furthermore, there's also studies that show 
that when students engage in more quizzing and testing on material, that they actually are able to transfer that learning better. And that is a very, very big deal in teaching and learning, as a lot of us know is not just getting students to be able to solve a problem in one context or work their concept in one context, but can they do it in the next circumstance? And that very difficult process is aided by quizzing. And to me, what could be deeper learning than learning that transfers? So that's part of it. Some of it is perceptions around multiple choice quizzes and tests. There's an assumption too that if we're talking about quizzing, we must be talking about multiple choice questions. And first off, sometimes in larger classes, those are the final assessments. In that Introduction to Psychology course that we studied years back, that's what the assessments were. So having students practice in that format, I don't think that we should necessarily dismiss that. And as we can talk about in a little bit, there's lots of ways to induce retrieval practice that actually don't involve multiple choice questions. So there's a bit of that as well. And something that I've talked about with some faculty recently, too, is this baggage around K through 12. And maybe that's something that's resonant with you all. Yeah, that's given the testing effect a somewhat bad name because high stakes testing is being used in a lot of what's going on with K through 12. But that I don't think is what retrieval practice, as you're suggesting, is all about. Right. And I have to be cautious here. I really like how you laid that issue out in K through 12, that there is a reputation problem. And that has happened because of the high stakes standardized testing policy in the United States. And I got to be careful because I don't want to represent myself as an expert in K through 12 or in K through 12 education policy. But I don't think you have to be an expert in that to know that there's been a lot of seemingly pretty well justified public pushback against over-testing in K through 12. And yeah, I think that we absolutely do have to be aware of that. Students come to us in higher education. That's a system that many of them have been through. And our faculty are very aware and very cognizant of that too. So nobody's a blank slate here, not our students, not our fellow faculty. We have assumptions and ideas and experiences about testing that happen. Think those can be addressed. But yeah, that is definitely another very big barrier. We got to differentiate between high stakes standardized testing for the reasons it's done in K through 12 and low stakes testing and quizzing for learning as proponents of retrieval practice would have it. Some of the pushback I've heard from faculty fall into two categories related to this as well. One is that they assume that retrieval practice is best implemented in 100, 200 level introductory classes instead of upper level 300, 400 graduate level classes. And then the other area is that paper and pencil tests don't make sense in all disciplines. And so they assume that a test has to be in a paper pencil format, which could be online testing or it could be multiple choice or it could be essay questions. But I think that from being someone in the arts, like there's other ways to test beyond that. But we don't think of those as tests. Right. That's another great lens through which to look at this issue, that we do need to broaden the definition to draw more attention to this and to make it a more appealing concept. But yes, how can we make it broadly appeal across lots of different disciplines? Not only does it not have to be a multiple choice type of exam, maybe it's not a pencil and paper exam at all. And we as faculty have to think about what makes sense there. You make a good point about the levels concept. 
I think these days, most of us have heard of, well, there's one in particular, Bloom's Taxonomy, which is a wonderful framework for getting us thinking about being systematic, about what we're asking students to do with the information that we're bringing to a course and trying to do things like align the teaching we do with the assessments that we have. That's wonderful. However, I think it does ingrain in us that idea that, well, just knowing things is sort of at the bottom. (laughs) You sort of get that out of the way and then we go on to the good stuff. And from a cognitive perspective, these relationships are much more fluid and much more interdependent. So that, yes, absolutely, that higher thinking, that is what we want. That is what we should want. Or if we're in highly applied disciplines, if we're in the arts, for example, we need students to be able to do things with that information, but they have to have that. So I think it challenges us to think in new ways with that concept as well. One of the barriers I think some people have is they don't like to grade tests and so forth. But one of the things you mentioned in your book is that the testing effect's been known for a long time, but it was really difficult to implement in terms of low-stakes testing particularly when you're teaching at a larger scale. But as you've done yourself and as you suggest in your book, computer technology makes it easier to automate some of this, certainly more easily for multiple choice and free response and similar things, but it makes it a whole lot easier for both students to have multiple attempts at learning something using some type of mastery quizzing. And it makes it a whole lot easier for faculty who don't have to spend all their time grading. Right. And that's absolutely where the practical stuff comes in. So we've worked through some of the philosophical objections that, no, this does not turn your classroom into some terrible assembly line concept of learning. It's not going to create a bad relationship with your students. It's not going to simply carry on a legacy of bad policy as people perceive it. It's not going to do those things. And then we do get to, all right, but what is this going to do to my life as a faculty member? And this is important stuff. Those who know me know I'm a big fan of James Lang's work in his books. One of his more recent books is called Small Teaching. And there's a lot of different takes on it in that book, but it really hits home with respect to we do have to think about not everybody's in a position to, nor should we even try sometimes to just take everything down (laughs) to the foundation and rebuild that we do really need to think about do I want to do this if it's going to create 800 more questions for me to grade? Is this a sort of a situation where, well, I don't want multiple choice, so I'm going to have to give these open-ended questions. I'm going to have to give feedback and I have 200 students. What will happen if I am going to go with multiple choice questions? Well, how am I going to do this? Do I have to write all of this? And yes, it's one of the most powerful outcomes of the educational technology revolution that makes it workable and scalable in a sense, even with large classes, to do these types of things and to bring them in. So that is definitely a message that I hope faculty think about if they're on the borderline of wanting to bring in more retrieval practice into their classes. I'm in a discipline where the multiple choice questions or using things digitally doesn't always work for testing and practicing some of these basic things. And there's not a good way to automatically grade it. But one of the strategies that I've used is actually some self-grading, which has actually worked pretty well. I just check and I have them write notes about anything that they got wrong. So it demonstrates that they've tried to understand when we go over it. And I give credit based on how thorough those notes are rather than whether or not they got the question right or wrong. And that's made a difference in my classes. And had I not come up with that solution, I think I would have abandoned it because it would have been too much work. But it, it actually is working pretty well. When we had a reading group on small teaching last year, one of the things that was widely adopted by faculty was a very simple form of retrieval practice where they had students at the start of each class reflect back on what they had done in the previous class. And most of them have continued to do that in subsequent classes as well. 
One of the other barriers that faculty might raise is the idea that students don't take low stakes things seriously or that they don't put the same kind of time into it that they might for something that's high stakes. Can you talk a little bit about how we might help students find value in retrieval practice and subsequently also the faculty then? Right. So that, well, we can put it out there, but will they do it? I've kind of crossed this philosophical and practical barrier for myself of giving some credit for pretty much anything that I am hoping that students will do. If I put the work in to set it up, and I do believe as a teacher that there's reasonably that will help their performance, and I need to work it into the syllabus somewhere. I don't think it detracts from learning necessarily to say, yeah, there's some points associated with this. And especially with our students who, for many of us, are going in a million directions at once. They're juggling jobs, multiple classes, sometimes their own families. So having an incentive in the form of points, having some kind of a payoff, I think, helps them make that decision that this is at least worth the time to do. I think the other thing that we probably can all do more of and that I've done more of over the years is framing and honestly marketing this to students, communicating with them about why. And when students disengage from an activity like this, when they say, why do I have to sit down and do this thing? This is just another test. Oh, no. Really conveying the excitement and the goodwill that we have in setting those things up can go a very, very long way. Of course, a student, if they just look at an assignment, they have no context for why this was put into place. They're going to have them say, well, maybe I won't do that. But when we can market to students, we can say there is a lot of research that shows that this is a very, very good use of your time. And hey, you've probably taken a lot of tests in your life that were really about measuring or sorting you and figuring out what you know, what you can do. Well, this is a very different kind of test. So that can go along. You get to see students nodding, going, all right, I get it. I get why she put this assessment right here. I think a lot of us have hit on the practical strategy too. The little Easter eggs or goodies that we plant in the form of questions that get reused on the higher stakes assessment. So most of us will have test for measurement at some point in our courses. And yes, students really do pick up on it when you use one, two, or more of those items that were in, say, the gamified quiz that you ran in class or the reading quiz that they did beforehand. They can see those and say, oh, wow, I got feedback on that. I got an opportunity to practice. And if it draws in a few more students who see it as almost a legitimate form of cheating, honestly, like a fun and sanctioned form of getting an advanced sneak peek at the exam, then great. Then that maybe is an opportunity for them to come in and see that. So there is that. Actually taking it seriously ourselves, not just in the form of saying, well, here's the points I'm going to give you for this, but spending class time on it. That's a big bridge for a lot of us to cross, right? Because we as teachers tend to be very focused on oh my gosh, classes for covering material. We use all these sort of distance metaphors to talk about what we want to do with our class time. But if I say, you know what, guys, I believe in this and I believe in it enough to where we are going to spend the entire class period before the final exam. I did that twice last week myself when running exams. Or we're going to spend five or 10 minutes of beginning of every class period doing this as one project recently published about doing If you show yourself doing that and offer them that, I think that also goes a long way towards it. And I guess, too, just saying, well, taking it seriously here again, what does that look like? What does that mean to different people? And we can kind of the little tongue in cheek say, well, why do we have to take it so seriously? Sometimes games and learning can happen when it is presented in a more fun context. So not everything has to be 
deadly serious or spending hours and hours and hours of stressful time on. There are occasions when a lighthearted approach can be perfectly good and can still get us involved in that really critical activity of retrieval. I can share an example of doing that in my classes. We've done design challenges and sometimes we challenge other classes that are happening at the same time that reinforces some of the basic principles that we think that students should be doing and reminds them of it. And they might work in a team and then we have a competition and it's fun and what have you. And students like those. It breaks up the day. It makes it more fun. And then I've also done things where I give class time to do little design challenges in class that might be individual and then they can level up to working with a partner to finish solving a problem or something. And students value that. They recognize that next time they're trying to do a project on their own, that it's easier because they've had that practice or that opportunity for the retrieval practice. And my students have actually ended up asking for more of those opportunities. Right. Could you go back just a little bit and tell us what you did in those couple of classes last week before your final? We're recording this, by the way, in early December during finals periods in both of our campuses, but we'll be releasing it a few weeks later to put that in context. Oh, okay. Well, I'd love to. And I've been talking about retrieval practice, as you pointed out, for years, and I still discover new ways to infuse this into courses. And the context for this is my cognitive psychology undergraduate course. It's uh, 200 level, so it's a lower division course, and it's about 60 or 70 students. And as you can imagine, it is a bit of a tough sell. Many of the students, it's their first encounter with this side of psychology. It's not as intuitive as some other areas of psychology. So there's a lot to learn and a lot of motivation to be done. One of the ways that we bring this in in this course is using a technology called Kahoot. That's spelled K-A-H-O-O-T. And it's really very intuitive and functions very smoothly, relatively free of bugs. That's good stuff. It's a program for doing gamified quizzes of various kinds. What I did at different points in the semester and then really amped up at the last week of the semester is running these gamified quizzes. And this is something, by the way, that I hit on and got the idea to try based on a colleague named Nikki Bray, who's from Tennessee and has actually done some really systematic work in reformulating some of her courses around in-class quizzing in just really ingenious ways. So I saw some of her presentations and I said, I've got to try this for myself. I went with multiple choice questions. Kahoot does have some parameters. Questions you have to be short, very, very short. And so some people that may be off-putting, but you can put together quite a few of these. And so we would put this up on the projector and students had the option of dialing with either their laptop or their smartphone and weighing in on each question. The neat thing about it is it has an algorithm for giving points based on your speed as well as your accuracy. And it's got a little leaderboard so you can actually have a little in-class competition. Now, some people who use this do require all students to do it and they actually issue points for performance. Now, I presented it very much as a practice activity and made it very, very clear because of my philosophy I'm not going to assume that all students have devices or have smartphones or laptops or that they want to do that. But I said, look, remember, we're talking about retrieval practice, guys. So the real meat and potatoes of this is not buzzing in on your phone. That's fun. But the real benefit of this activity is what you're doing sitting there in your seat. And you could be doing this with a piece of paper if you want. And that is what a few students opt to do. They try to answer the questions. They note what they need to go back and review and so on. And it's nice because it spits out at the end a whole report that tells me right away, okay, which questions do we need to revisit? Which ones do students have the hardest time with? And so on. 
that's one of the things that I just brought in. And yeah, it was a big deal. I sacrificed a chapter of quote unquote coverage so that we would have more time at the end of the semester. But to me, I would rather have students going into the final knowing that they've had this retrieval practice and they have a better chance of performing really well, earning a good grade on this material I care about than in honestly cramming in a little bit more mileage in terms of the quantity. Sounds like fun. You know what? It does really bring a fun factor. There's been a lot of different variations on in-class polling. And I will admit to this, I actually purchased and I'm in the proud owner of a physical buzz-in quiz device, <laughs> complete with a whole spaghetti nest of wires and an incredibly abrasive buzzer sound and everything. So previous to this, my educational technology did include, I think I could have up to eight intrepid volunteers who would play a quiz game, and then I would have to appoint a points keeper and all this. And props are always a lot of fun. So when I say I believe in bringing in retrieval practice, I really do walk that walk. But I will say doing it by a smartphone does allow for more participation, and I don't have to worry as much about the minutia of scorekeeping and stuff like that. I played with Kahoot a little bit at my classes at Duke, and students have loved it. We've talked a little bit about framing things so that students take the practice seriously. What do we do about the students who just push back? It's like, this is too much work. This is a lot of extra time or that sort of argument. I think that that's another piece of that barrier to more faculty adopting this. Not just the work involved, but realistically, student opinions, student evaluations matter a lot to faculty life. And of course, we all want to have that wonderfully rewarding semester, not the semester where we feel like we're at odds with our students. So I do think a little piece of this is we do anticipate sometimes worse and more pushback than what actually happens in the end. So I think we have a fair amount of sort of a dread factor when we go into something new like this. But that said, when students have an issue with more quizzing or more testing, Here's how those come out. I think, first of all, we do have to sometimes separate out the technology aspects of it from the quizzing or testing per se. So as John mentioned, this is one of the amazing things that educational technology does. But the flip side of that is if you've ever used technology for education in any shape or form, you know that it breaks down. And when it breaks down in a big class, that's a headache for everybody. It's a misery. So if you're trying it and things are not working out, you just got to figure out, okay, how much of this is the assignment, the activity per se, and how much of it is that wonky quizzing thing that I got from the publisher and it fell apart or students hanging up when they're trying to dial in with the poll and fine tuning those. I mean, when I first used Kahoot, I decided it would be a lovely idea to put four chapters worth of material into a 40 question quiz. And when you get used to this, you know that they take a long time. I mean, 12 questions can keep you going for a very long time, especially if you're discussing. And some students got kicked out partway through, and then they weren't on the leaderboard. And I could have set the whole thing aside, but really that was more I needed to get the technology working. So that's a big piece of it. I think that sometimes it is a perception issue with the timing. Now, those of us who are just all over this as a teaching technique, we like to do reading quizzes before we talk about that material in class. So chapter three is up on the syllabus and your chapter three reading quiz is due on Sunday night before we do that. And that can provoke a fair amount of confusion and honestly griping with students. They say, why did I get tested on this when we didn't do it yet? We didn't cover it in class yet. And what do you know? That's another framing and communications issue. Once we know that that is why we're doing that, you get so much less on that 
that side of things. But here too, we do also ourselves have to follow along with what we say. If we say you're doing this reading quiz so that we're establishing a foundation, we don't have to teach everything in the class itself, we can spend the time applying. Well, guess what? Then you do have to do that. So if I assign you to do the reading quiz on chapter three, and then on that Monday morning, I go, okay, we're going to go over chapter three, starting at the top. And I'm going to show you all the PowerPoints for all these things that you already read. Well, yes, then student morale, student support will fall apart at that point. Those are very good reminders. <laughs> yeah, I've pretty much adopted this approach all through my class, beginning when I first saw you present it. So I have students do the reading in advance. I have them take reading quizzes with repeated attempts allowed on those. And then in class, I have them working on clicker questions and INTAs go around and help them when they get stuck on problems. But there's an adjustment and students, especially when I first started doing it, would generally say, but you're not teaching me. And you do have to sell students on this a bit. One source of resistance is that when students take quizzes, they often get negative feedback. When they read something and they read it over again, it looks more and more familiar. They've got that whole fluency illusion thing going and they become comfortable with it and they feel that they're learning it. Or similarly, if they hear someone give a really clear presentation on a topic, it feels comfortable. They feel like they're learning it until they get some type of summative assessment where they get negative feedback, and then they feel the test was somehow tricky. But it's a bit harder to convince them that actually working through retrieval practice, watching videos at their own time and pace, reading material as needed, and then spending class time working through those problems is as effective. I'm getting better at it, but it's been a long time trying to convince students. And I did take a bit of a hit in my evaluations, especially the first few times. Do you mean learning's not easy? Students would like learning to be easy. <laughs> You know, it's funny, I think almost in a way, see what you think about this idea, but it's almost near image of our illusions as teachers, right? That I gave a wonderful, clear lecture and I assigned wonderful readings and I saw students highlighting them. Therefore, students must have assimilated this knowledge and it must be in there. So I think it challenges our students, but it also challenges us as well. It can be quite an eye-opening experience too, running something like a Kahoot and that brilliant point that I gave this great example for, what do you know, 7% of the students actually nailed it. And so we can all use a reality check, teachers and the students. And you mentioned rereading. That's another one where I've had some pretty intensive conversations with other faculty. I'll kind of say, oh, well, and there's this great research that shows that students tend to reread when they're studying. And we know that from a memory standpoint, that is really, really ineffective. And faculty will say, whoa, 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 I want my students to be rereading. Of course, now when they say rereading, they may be picturing deeply interrogating a text, annotating it looking at it from a different perspective. And absolutely, that's a wonderful part of scholarship. But that isn't what we're talking about when we're talking about students rereading as a study form and mistaking highlighting for deep interrogation. So just like with the rest of knowledge bases versus higher order skills, this is another where it's both and. It cannot be either or. Yes, we want students rereading in the right ways. But students or teachers cannot mistake that for learning sometimes. So let's say you've just convinced all of our listeners that we need to be doing this. How do we bake it into our course designs? Well, I think that really getting creative with this. And as I talk to faculty, when I visit other schools or talk to faculty at my own institutions, I just see all of these new ideas all the time about how to do this. Once you do get that critical epiphany of 
all right, a test doesn't have to look like a test on the surface. It does not have to be the ritual of, okay, you've got a number two pencil that's breaking and I'm standing over you and while you have a panic attack for an hour. That's not what it is. It's about the retrieval. Once you get that, all kinds of creativity opens up. So I've also started it sometimes on the very first day with the syllabus quiz. So especially if you have a smaller class, we all struggle with that. I spend all week writing the syllabus and it's incredibly important. And then I'm getting questions about stuff that's on it all the way through the semester. So really on the first day, what I do is I take a very lighthearted approach and I divide the students up into teams, just physical teams. Everybody's got a copy of the syllabus. Sometimes I fake them out and I say, okay, we're going to go over the syllabus point by point. And I say, no, you can read the syllabus. <laughs> we're actually going to do this other thing, which research shows will actually help you remember it. So the task here is that each team formulates a set of questions. You can make just a few, like three. So a little bit of teamwork. So formulate three good questions off the syllabus. And you'd be amazed. They come up with questions that even I can't answer sometimes without having to cheat. So they talk about it. And then, of course, you go around the room in some arrangement. And each team gets to ask the other team their questions. And if you really want, you could keep score. And everybody loves bragging rights for being the team that stumped the other teams and won the most points. So it can literally start right then with that idea that I don't read stuff to you in this class. This is about you. And I'm also not piling a huge amount of work on myself either. Apart from being the moderator and the MC and having written the thing in the first place, I don't have to write questions. They're writing the questions and they're answering them too. So those are some of the ways that we can do that. I think, especially in our larger classes, we do want to think about things like peer grading or peer review of open-ended question responses. We do want to take advantage of things like publishers' test banks to set those up as reading quizzes. And you'd mentioned earlier about, well, what about this not being suitable for upper division classes? I had an upper division class that just wrapped this semester where we had reading quizzes as well. It may have been an upper division course, but it also served that purpose of, hey, you take a basic quiz over the chapter on Sunday, and that really sets the stage for us to have a more substantive discussion. All of those things are ways that we can do this. I think open-ended reflection as well. So tests that look nothing like a test, but are still retrieval practice. You'd mentioned about reflecting on what you learned last class period. So this sometimes goes by the name uh, brain dump. And I did a bit of this last semester as well. So this, by the way, I do want to credit the great website, retrievalpractice.org. So retrieval practice is actually that high profile. It has its own website. It's absolute treasure trove of ideas. So with the brain dump, the way that I did it, very similar to what it sounds like you did, Every now and again, we start off class with you writing down everything you remember from last time on a piece of paper. I had students then turn to their neighbor and compare notes and see what they came up with. And I didn't grade those. This was not a heap of grading for me. But in the end, what they did turn into me for accountability and a few points was a very short reflection just on an index card. So what surprised you? And I review those and they're very eye-opening. But again, I'm not there to police or micromanage what they put on that card. So that's retrieval practice too. There's lots of different flavors that we can bring in. I do something similar with asking students to reflect on the reading and each module we work through. But because I teach fairly large class, I didn't want to have to deal with all the index cards. So I just have them fill out a simple Google form and then I can skim through it and assign grades much more easily than shuffling paper. But it's the same basic idea and it's worked quite well. Absolutely. Do you have any other examples of the kinds of little tests that faculty can run that don't look like tests? 
Right. So tests that don't look like tests. Well, here's another that was probably a little bit more practical for a small class. And this is how I ran this. It, like the brain dump exercise, the way I ran it, was also very cyclical and very student generated. So we started out each class at the beginning of each week with students generating a set of quiz questions based out of the assigned reading. So we didn't actually, in this particular example, have pre-quizzes or something like that. But students came in knowing that they could bring their book if they wanted, but they would need to sit down and write for me three questions, whether short answer or multiple choice. Then I could flip through those and I would really quickly put those together for a quiz that went out the subsequent day. So we're alternating between generating questions and then returning to those questions. And then I would pass that out. I told them, treat this like a realistic test actually try to retrieve everything. But, you know, when time's up, you're going to get to go back to it. And then they would grade it themselves. So I didn't actually do the grading either. And that is really great for spurring discussion. And oh my gosh, I thought I knew the difference between reliability and validity. But now that I tried to answer it, I realized that I didn't. And then you can throw it back out to the student who now has bragging rights for having had their question selected and say, hey, what did you mean? What was the right answer? And why did you put that down there? And at the end of the day, they kept that quiz too. So it was really very much in their own hands to do. So there's that. Other creative ideas that I've run across over the last couple of semesters, there's a great project out there run by Bruce Kirchhoff at University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So I got the wonderful pleasure of talking to that group last year. And he and some colleagues working in the area of botany actually put together a freestanding custom-built mobile app that students could take with them that presented different kinds of quizzes over the sorts of things that botany students really need to know, like the back of their hands, like how to identify different plants and how to discriminate among different examples. And they found some empirical evidence that this actually raised performance up quite a bit. I've heard, too, of another professor put together some surveys in Qualtrics, the surveying software, took advantage of its ability to actually text message people and send them questions. So this was an opt-in sort of activity. And it's one that they didn't just have it run 24-7 because it was a little intrusive. But what it did is it sent students questions that they could answer at different intervals throughout the day, which also takes advantage of another principle from applied memory research, which is spacing. So students are getting these unpredictable questions. They have the option to answer them and they could be happening even when they're not in class. So those are some other ways. Some of them look like tests, some of them don't, but those are creative ways to get students engaged in that practice. As a faculty member, we often advise students and mentor students who might be struggling in other classes, ones that we don't have control over. Are there ways that we can help those students use this methodology to do well in those classes where it might not be embedded? Right. And that's so great that you bring that in as well, because ultimately, that is what we need as teachers. And that maybe circles back to yet one other piece of objection that I've seen. Actually, this time in a published article from a few years back that said, well, are we doing too much for students? Are we scaffolding them too much so that they are going to grow really dependent on these kinds of aids like reading quizzes and reading questions? But if we also have in our mind very intentionally that what we want students to have at the end of the day is also something they can walk away with, I think that we do have to be very mindful of like, okay, let's not create the impression that just because retrieval practice is so important that you have to sit there and wait for me to put together this specific kind of reading quiz for you. So I think here the really powerful message is, once again, that once students take this to heart, once they've not just been told this, that, oh, well, you should quiz yourself as a study strategy, but they've seen that I believe in it, 
to the point where I'm going to put time, energy, and work into it as part of my class. And maybe they've even seen the results. They've now had their own little before and after experience of what happens when I do this, that they can be more likely to take this forward. So having more faculty across the curriculum endorse this as a powerful idea that, hey, this is how your mind works. This is how your brain works. Your brain doesn't just soak up stuff that's in front of it. You soak up stuff that you have to answer questions about. That, I think, is going to be a powerful message. And there's actually another article out there that I just absolutely love. It was done by a psychologist named Penna Baker and some colleagues at University of Texas at Austin some time ago. They replaced high-stakes assessments in their Introduction to Psychology course with these mobile in-class quizzes that were done every day. And one of the things that they report in this article is not just that students did better in that class, but that certain subgroups of students actually showed improvement, specifically closing of achievement gaps, really, in classes that they took after this psychology course. And these were classes that were not even in psychology. So you think about that for a minute. How does that happen? Now, nobody knows exactly for sure because this was kind of an unexpected finding in the study was my impression. But a real possibility is that when students have sat in this class and every single day, they have seen the power of taking a quiz, of spacing out their learning and attacking it in a very active learning approach. Once they've seen that happen, they're more likely to go home and say, you know what, I can do this in my biology course too. I don't have to sit there with the teacher's quiz, but if I attack it in the same way, I might get the same results. So I think with those things, we can have students walking away with that enduring practice that we want them to have. And it is funny too, because it brings up one of the I'll just say it was a really heartwarming teacher moment that I had this last semester when I did bring in these Kahoot quizzes. The run-up to the first exam, I'd done my fancy little in-class quiz and was kind of patting myself on the back of what a great leader I was. So I came in to, I think it was the class right before this exam, and I come plowing into the classroom and it's dead quiet. And there is a student at the front of the classroom. He has commandeered the podium and the computer. And what has he done? He's accessed the cahoots, which I gave him the links, you know, they're out there for all the students to see. And he is running them. And the rest of the students in the class are taking them just as seriously as when I was administering them. So they're running through the questions again, giving it another shot. I didn't tell them to do this at all. It was one of these moments where I just backed out and closed the door after me. And I came back in when they were finished. And so I think those are the kind of moments that we can set ourselves up for when we really do bring this into our classes and we get behind it in a really authentic way. I think one thing, Michelle, in the way that I asked the question, I had also asked it from the perspective of if a student hadn't had the experience of doing a retrieval practice in a class. So if you're working with a student maybe outside of class or as an advisor, are there things that we could do to help those students adopt those practices even if they haven't seen it modeled for them? So how do you help students when they haven't had some of these experiences on their own? And I think this is a part of a bigger package of goals that I think a lot of us should have in supporting our students to really put students in the driver's seat to say, yeah, you don't have to wait for a certain style of teaching or a certain subject material in order to succeed with it. I see that as really part of a larger package of growth mindset, honestly. So what can students do to make themselves the masters of this? Now, I think that there are some old standard, very traditional approaches 
that are worthwhile. And when you look at those approaches, sometimes retrieval practice is at the core. So it may not be a matter of trotting out a very unfamiliar set of terminology or anything for students before, but really getting them to look at some of these approaches in a new way. So things like, if you've ever heard the term SQ4R or PQ4R, there's a couple of those that have acronyms. And the things they have in common are that they tell students when you sit down to study or read a text or prepare for a test, here's what you do. You don't just start reading from the top with no goal in mind other than, oh, I want to get a good grade layer. What you do is first, First of all, you set yourself up with questions, which is, after all, a lot like retrieval practice. Start with a question, say, what do I want to answer? Can I answer that now? And if not, why not? To read your text or go through your material very intentionally around those questions. And then there's always this piece of recite or review. That's what one of those R's stand for in, in some of those traditional systems. And that means closing the book. That means closing the book and saying, okay, I've sat here with this material for this amount of time. What can I actually say about it at this point? So sometimes directing students back into some of those and saying, you need to adopt these strategies, which are completely teacher independent. They're fairly discipline independent as well. That can be good. If you're doing them for the right reasons and with the right approach in mind, that's very good. Encouraging students to take advantage of the publisher's companion sites. Now, this is a little bit more of an uphill climb. That is where we run into, well, if there's no points for it, why should I do it? But encouraging students to say, look, you already paid for this textbook to be crass about it. You paid all this money. Did you know there's a website over here? And if you interact with those materials in this particular way, that's really, really likely to pay off for you. So besides just ensuring that our students have what I consider to be these basic foundational pieces of knowledge about the mind and brain that we remember through testing, we remember through a retrieval and an active engagement, all students should have that. But those are some specific things that we can counsel students to use across all their studies that really should pay off. Do you have any other suggestions for those faculty that are thinking about expanding their use of retrieval practice? You know, just to really encourage and support faculty who are starting this journey, as it sounds like that you all have, to really re-examine how we can bring in this incredibly powerful principle. And to really reassure each other that, yeah, this is not about really just piling so much more work on yourself. We can sometimes even just re-examine the assessments and assignments that are already in the course. And so that's kind of one last piece of practice that I think that a lot of us can really stand to bring in. And that was a big thing for me as well, to say, well, if I'm going to administer these tests, we administer tests, we administer midterms anyway. What else can we do to increase their value as learning experiences, as learning events? So here's another where I've brought in various forms of test discussion activities. Instead of standing in front of the class with that deadly, the day after the test class period where I say, let's go over it to realize, you know what, that probably will not work that well. But one of the amazing things that we have learned from the research on retrieval practice is that it's not just in the moment in the taking of the test where this advantage to memory happens. It actually creates a sort of a receptive window for learning and for review when we've just taken a test on something. So if you've got a midterm in your class already, 
well, hey, why not carve out the time after that test is up to say, give it back to the students. Like I photocopy the exams before I've graded them. They have no feedback on them whatsoever. And I hand them back to students as a group discussion exercise. They say, all right, here's a blank copy of the exam. Your group can fill out this blank copy together, just knowing what you know, revisiting all those questions, having those good discussions about what you understood and what you didn't. And I offer a little bit of extra credit for really good performance on that. And there's other ways to work that out. So it actually takes off as a small group exercise in the class. But regardless of the specifics of how you make something like that work, the spirit of it is the same. That when you sat down to do this, to try to drag all this information out of memory, that is not an end unto itself. It should be part of a bigger picture of learning in the class. And it's sort of an untapped vein of potential we have as teachers and that our students have as well, and that we can access it regardless of what the discipline is or how the class is set up. And students see it's very relevant. I started doing something very similar in my econometrics class last year, following a suggestion from Doug Doug McKee, McKee, who had been doing that in his class. And it worked remarkably well. It turned what was normally a pretty unproductive class period where we'd go over the test and the people who did well would just be really happy and pretty much ignore any discussion. And the people who did badly were just sitting there unhappy and not really being very receptive. But when they sit there and they're explaining it to each other, it seems like a really ripe time for them to learn the material much more deeply. I remember the first time that you implemented that. You sent me a text message with a photograph of his students taking a test, and it looked very active. (laughs) And they were having fun. One of the nice things that came out is I was wandering around listening to their conversations, and I was hearing people say, oh, yeah, now I see where that came from. Or someone would say, well, when did we learn this? And then someone else would say, well, remember when we worked on these problems? And it just helped them make connections. And the power of peer instruction is so remarkable. I'm going to do it in as many of my classes as I can. That's perfect. That's what we want as teachers. And that's what our students benefit from. So as you know, we always wrap up our podcast by asking, what's next? Oh, wow. So I am looking forward to kind of rebooting a course that I have not taught in some time, my senior capstone course in technology, mind and brain. And that is a fun one, but it's one that is going to take a lot of revision since it is technology and things change so rapidly, as we all know. So that is going to be a big part of next semester. I also have a crop of research projects in various angles on teaching, learning, and educational technology that I'm really excited to be moving forward in the next calendar year. One of those really foremost among them is a project on virtual reality for learning. We have an incredibly creative and dynamic team looking at virtual reality here at Northern Arizona University. They put together an amazing series of interactive exercises that are part of the organic chemistry course here and teach some of the challenging concepts in that extraordinarily challenging gateway course. And so we now have a whole set of data from students who went through and did this at varying points during the semester. We got their feedback. We've got all different kinds of psychometric measures that we gathered from them at the time as well. So I cannot wait to be tackling that and looking at all kinds of angles on how this part of technology is impacting student learning in this course. Sounds like some exciting adventures. That sounds like a wonderful research project. Looking forward to seeing what you find. It was a real pleasure to talk to you again, Michelle. Thanks for spending some time with us. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, likewise. Always a pleasure to talk to your listeners.
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.